You are listening to the Hybrid Cloud How-To Series with host Andre Tost, brought to you by IBM. All right, yes, and welcome to a new episode of the How-To Hybrid Cloud Series. And today I'm delighted to have Tamara Elam with me. Uh, Tamara is just like all the other guests we have on this podcast series, an IBM fellow. And she works in research. So the, the topic of today's conversation will be about how research and hybrid cloud align, what, what, what research in this particular case for IBM even means and, and so forth. Um, before we go there, Tamar, maybe, and, and welcome, obviously, um, but maybe you can give us a quick introduction of yourself, kind of how you got to be where you are today. Yes. Hi, everyone. And I'm very happy to be here. So, Andre, thanks for inviting me. I uh, did my PhD in Israel in computer science uh, on uh, theoretic algorithms, complexity analysis, and, and so forth. And I joined IBM Research in the year 2000, coming from Israel, immigrating from Israel, basically. Um, I joined as a research staff member, and I uh, was recognized later in, as an IBM fellow uh, for the research that I've conducted in cloud computing. Uh, so I really had the opportunity to actually work for 20 years on cloud computing research. And when I say that, I actually have the evidence to prove it. Um, the first research project that I joined in the year 2000, um, the name was Oceano, and it was later recognized with uh, an IBM research accomplishment as the birth of cloud. So this is cloud before we even knew what cloud is. So there you have it. That's where the cloud was invented, right there. But it wasn't called hybrid cloud at the time, I suppose. It was not called hybrid cloud. Back then, we didn't even know what cloud is. And I, I can tell you what that project was doing. It was basically um, allocating machines per customer um, based on the workload of that customer. So you have multiple tenants and tenants and you need to allocate machines. We didn't use virtualization back then. So this was just like x86 servers. And uh, the allocation of machines basically included scrubbing the disk because you don't want to uh, disclose any information uh, by mistake. It included provisioning and configuration of the network, the load balancer, and so on. And the big thing back then was um, optimization. So how do we optimize the utility function? Back then we called it e-utility. Um, but later I discovered that was not the real challenge to be solved. That was the easy problem uh, to solve in this case. <laughs> All right. And then, so give us give us your definition of hybrid cloud then. So you know, when you just described the, how it all began, you know, what, what's this notion of hybrid that, that got added to it over time? Yeah, so later we realized it, it was a long, long journey, 20 years journey uh, on cloud computing. And uh, it took a long time for customers to transition to um, third-party clouds. And some of them did not fully transition and do not expect to fully transition ever, actually. Um, I think 80%, statistically 80% of the workloads still run on uh, on-prem data centers that the customers have. When we talk about hybrid cloud, we basically, it's this recognition that uh, workloads can run on-prem, workloads can run off-prem, 
Sometimes it's dynamic where you have some parts of your application that runs on-prem, some parts that run off-prem, uh, or maybe transition between the two. Maybe the testing uh, cycle takes place um, on a public cloud, but the production runs on private cloud because of the uh, sensitivity of the data. So there are multiple use cases where we see a hybrid environment, hybrid through the lifecycle of the application or hybrid with different parts of the application, or hybrid with different applications. Um, a customer may have an on-prem environment, they may have third-party or multiple third-parties. That entire landscape is what we call hybrid cloud. And I think one of the main challenges and one of the main uh, unique things with the IBM approach is how to manage the, this complexity of multiple environments in a consistent and in a uniform way. And that's where hybrid cloud comes into play. That's the guiding principle here is we want to be open. We want to be heterogeneous. We want to embrace heterogeneity. And we want to support different environments that customers uh, are having. Okay. So then uh, something I've always found fascinating is, I mean, I spend most of my time in IBM in, in actual product development, never in research, really. So the idea, obviously, is that if there's a new space like cloud computing or hybrid cloud computing, there's new groundbreaking discoveries to be made and explorations to be made. And that's really where research comes in. So I, I wonder, how does that even get started? I mean, where do you where do you get your ideas for saying, well, here's something that we should spend some time on researching. Maybe it will turn into something. Yes, that's an excellent question. Maybe I should say one sentence before about what is IBM research and how we work and what is our mission, and then I can answer your question. Oh, sure. Um, so IBM research is a very special place, and I really enjoy working there. Um, amazing people, very smart. And we're working on innovative, uh, state-of-the-art, the new inventing the future, uh, if you will. But we're always trying to strike the balance between... Um, working on whatever uh, the heck we like to work on. Uh, we, we try to work on things that are strategic to IBM. And how do we do that? We, we work closely with the business units. So we do always work to understand what's the strategy of the company, where the company is going. What, and, and, and in that context, what are the next big challenges that we should tackle? Um, so that's, that's how IBM research works. Now, let me answer specifically your question. And I'm going to go back to the Oceano story. So uh, as I said, we had this idea of provisioning machines to customers in a multi-tenant environment. And uh, the focus or what was considered the research was the optimization problem. It's how you maximize the utility. How do you predict what workload you're going to have? And based on that, allocate the resources for that particular customer. It turns out that that was not the most difficult problem. So you know what was the most difficult problem? Where we got stuck was on the uh, automation piece. Automation. So <laughs> that is sort of a cross-reference to the other podcast, right? And um, where we got stuck was specifically that uh, we wrote beautiful automation scripts to configure the environment, to allocate, to move a server from client A to client B, and to do that by configuring the network and the load balancers and the database and so on and so forth. However, this automation completely broke when we went to different customer environments. That's because we were making the wrong assumptions. Some customers used firewalls, so now we need to worry about firewall configurations. Sometimes they did not. Sometimes they had a different load balancing technology. 
and so forth and so uh, so forth. The automation broke. It was too fragile. And that's what led me to think, hey, this is a difficult problem. How do you effectively write automa- automation uh, in an effective way, in a flexible way? And I came up with this idea that rather than write static automation that will break because we're making the wrong assumptions on the environment, because the environment is going to de- be different for different customers, we need to define a desired state. And we need to derive the automation scripts, dynamically generate them like in a compiler from that desired state. So take the desired state then discover the current state and generate the automation workflows based on the desired and current state. And so that was a big aha moment for me. And that was an idea that I spent multiple years implementing and uh, eventually also led to the um, you know me getting being recognized as an IBM fellow so it's it was really somewhere else and when you listen to your customers and you go and you apply the technology you may start with one thing but you shouldn't be so in love with it because the problem or the interesting problem may be in a completely different uh, corner of your project and see you know just that description makes me a bit jealous to be honest and then To, to the degree that you know you can have these ideas and and then go off and you you're given a degree of freedom to go off and explore them and and see if you can uh, get to these innovations and insights into new areas and explore them accordingly having said all that though I know from experience by working very closely with yourself and other people in research is that there's always this link to the real world anyway right so there's so one myth that maybe you can help dispel here is that researchers are kind of locked up in a building or in a basement and in the lab and they do their thing and 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 nothing ever comes out of it so you are working with customers regularly and very closely right with with actual yeah. customers leveraging the technology that you're working on we do and don't be don't be that quick to be jealous because believe me it's also very hard to be in IBM research and the reason is Do you think it was easy for me? Nobody listened to me. Nobody. Back in the days, this was the days of J2E. So everyone's, everyone were enamored, enamored with programming models. I was telling them, look, the problem is somewhere else. It's in deployment. It's the overhead of deploying these applications. That's where we should focus. But I had CTOs basically throwing me off their, from their offices and refusing to listen. So it was not easy. And I can tell you that when I got my first OTAA award, my manager, Giovanni Pacifici, who today is, is the VP of cloud, you know what he told me? He told me, this is for persistence. <laughs> In other words, I'm stubborn. <laughs> So maybe that's really one of the one of the qualities that that we're looking for in a researcher I guess is to be persistent and stubborn so what what are other qualities that you need to have to be successful yes so the other quality that you need to know to be successful is um I would say good instincts but maybe that's the wrong word because good instincts means you're not listening to yourself internally you have your eyes always up open and Your senses always on for the changing landscape because the landscape is always going to change okay uh, in technology especially 
And maybe something that was relevant yesterday is no longer relevant today. And sometimes, because you're so in love with your current project, you, you may miss it. And that's not going to be a good thing because you're going to sort of continue to dig your own grave and not get anywhere, if you know what I mean. And I can give an example of that. So fast forward this automation, desired state-based patterns. Uh, we were really busy for a few years implementing patterns and deriving automation from these patterns, but it was all very static. So we assumed that we have tools. The tools supported the different roles that existed. So there is the operation guy and there is the development guy. And obviously they don't talk because it's completely different organizations. So we need the unifying language. So we thought about it as a UML diagram or as an XML model, you know, to do all of these things. Fast forward, 2009, big revolution, DevOps. DevOps appeared. And, and that was something that I thought I, I, I would never believe that that will happen, something like this. A complete cultural revolution. Dev and ops working together, continuous delivery um, um, process. Everything is uh, deployed immediately. No more like the nightmare of deployment. And we needed to change course. And the way we did that is by shifting, shifting a little bit the technology. It was still desired state-based management, but rather than having static UML-like models, now we went to a domain-specific language, an actual language that you can implement, that you can work with in order to define this is the desired state and this is the automation that is linked to the desired state, something that a DevOps engineer can work on, something that can be integrated in the continuous delivery lifecycle. So think about Chef Puppet. That was uh, basically the idea or Terraform. And, and the project that I was working on back then was uh, Weaver. So that was uh, actually wave two of, uh, of my research. Um, and we needed to change course because the landscape, that, the, the landscape completely changed. So that was not the last time. Fast forward two more years, 2011, again, the landscape changed. And suddenly you have a new, a new pattern, a new development pattern, microservices. So with microservices, what you have is principles of loose coupling and the normalization of configuration, meaning that configuration is exposed in a normalized form. Again, something that I never believed is going to happen. My entire research was based on the assumption that configuration is complex and that you have implicit interdependencies between configuration. And that's why you need such complicated solutions to solve that problem, to make the make these interdependencies explicit so that we are not going to make mistakes and so on and so forth. With microservices, the entire thing was basically not needed anymore. Needed for legacy, but not needed for the new cloud native development style. And, you know, I always wanted to work on the new. So what, what do you do then? And I was sitting with myself and I thought, okay, so what's the next big idea? What do we need now in that changed landscape? What do our customers need? That's how we came to the realization that we need a microservice mesh, a microservice platform, if you will, to help people that develop microservices to deploy and manage them. And that led to the creation of um, Amalgamate. Amalgamate was a project that I did with two, three other people, really, really grassroots, kind of with almost no support, but we did it. And then we decided to open source it. Um, 
we open source to amalgamate and that sort of leads to my third principle which is you know open source is your friend <laughs> i'm a big proponent of open source and um i think that open friend open source is your friend but be careful because things may take a, a life of of their own in the open source world uh, so, open- so let me let me yeah. poke on that a little bit on yeah. the open source piece um you said you came out with this idea of this project that was called amalgamate and there was two or three of you working on this and you said you decided to make it open source. What what drives a decision like that? Why not make everything open source or why does mm-hmm. it matter? It's a really good question. And um, I, I believe the answer is pretty complicated. Um, I think today you need to have a good reason why not to make something open source. What you gain by making something open source is you gain credibility. You gain... Um, you gain transparency and that goes together with credibility and uh, you gain community and adoption and this is something that is very very important especially in cloud because nothing prevents you from then uh, making it open source but then also basing your cloud service on this right so you can also deliver it as a cloud service you can also deliver it as a product but when it's open sourced you gain an entire community around your project that can make it better because your ideas are not the best ideas. And as a researcher, this is something I learned. I'm, I'm very happy when other people contribute ideas that are better than mine. That makes me very happy. Okay. Um, so that's, and, and you know, especially when you want to be, to gain the thought leadership. Okay. Uh, publish a point of view. How would I be more effective? Publish a point of view as a paper or publish it as an open source project. Today, I'm probably going to be more effective if I publish it as an open source project. Which really describes... Yeah, I guess to add to that, and we're, we're seeing this with the example of Red Hat, right? Is where the entire business model of Red Hat is based on open sourcing everything. And uh, we're doing it more and more now, too, across the board. I, not just for the benefits you just mentioned, but also by the, the fact that not doing it is not benefiting us either, right? There's no there's no point in not keeping things open and transparent, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. But then when you open source, then there are lots of considerations that you need to take into account. So for example, do you have an army of developers that you can put on it right there? Do you have marketing behind it so that you, you can make it successful and gain the visibility that you need? All of these are important questions because if you don't have them, which is my case, um, then you need to make the right alliances. And in our case, what happened was that through that uh, open source project Amalgamate, we initiated a conversation with Google. And um, and this conversation, I mean, the best way for us to demonstrate the concepts was through open sourcing. Uh, this conversation led to us deciding together with, with Google to uh, pioneer Istio microservice mesh that was uh, completely based on Amalgamate initially. We took the entire code base and we took the concepts and we created something new and we pioneered it together with Google. And as you know, right now, it's a very, very uh, successful um, open source project. That's interesting. I sometimes wonder, you know, in the re- is there like a, a research community? So is there other researchers at Google and other companies in our industry that you all know and you all have your parties and conferences where you get together and exchange ideas over a glass of wine? Is that how it Completely. works? That's exactly how it works. So we all meet in KubeCon and uh, people know each other. People work together and people, of course, love to 
to meet and uh, brainstorm over a glass of wine. Uh, so, you know, if I have choice, KubeCon, I'm always, I'm always going to send, you know, the developers that are actually developing the code because they need to meet with their peers because they're the ones that are going to come up with the next innovation. And it's probably going to be over a glass of wine. <laughs> okay. But then, so, but there is another aspect of it also is that, and you mentioned earlier that it's all about being stubborn and persistent, but at what point do you give up, right? I mean, there must have been many projects that you started where at some point they didn't go anywhere and you kind of hit the point where you say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to shift my attention to something else. I, I also say that, and I actually reference him sometimes in this podcast, is my, my son's doing research on particle physics at the university. And so far, for the most part, the things that he has been doing have been all about disproving his own thesis, so to speak. <laughs> basically come up with an idea and then saying, and here's proof that my idea was wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. And basically saying, well, well, that's really the majority of what researchers do, maybe especially in the field of particle physics. Right. So I is so again, you know, when do you admit defeat and move on, so to speak? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, I think it, it goes to that principle of fail fast. Uh, I'm a very uh, big proponent of fail fast. But let's think about what it means to fail fast. First of all, my first result ever in my PhD that I published a paper about was a negative result. My, I actually proved that you can't have a linear algorithm to solve a certain problem. You have to have a polynomial, a polynomial algorithm to solve that problem. That was my... Uh, and by the way, there are like other scientists that were working at the same time to find a linear algorithm. But I was first. I was first to prove that it's actually not possible. So they're wasting their time. And, and that's a perfectly valid, perfectly valid result of your study, right? Absolutely. And that's what I'm saying. A negative result is a result. And I have some really good examples of people in IBM research that um, I really admire that, you know, you and I learned from, which is that you... Um, you need to think like a scientist. Uh, with software engineering, we also need to think like a scientist. So you think about the hypothesis. It can't be an hypothesis that it's going to take you three years to learn whether it's true or not. It needs to be something that in three months, six months, you can get an answer. Even if you chunk a problem, you, you know, you start with the most risky part of the problem that you're tr trying to prove. If, you, if you're proved wrong, you learn something. You learn something. And that learning is important, not just for you, for other people as well. So I love presentations where people come and present. So we tried that, that didn't work. So we moved to this and this didn't work. And then we tried that one and we think here we have a chance to succeed. That is um, much more insightful than just saying we're implementing it this way, and but we don't know why. You know what I mean? <laughs> so think like a scientist. And to, your, to answer your specific question, I never actually left an area. But I uh, that I was passionate about the only area that I left it be, it was because I wasn't passionate about that was security. You know, I was told that security is really, really important, and I really, really need to lead the area of security. But for some reason, I didn't have passion for it, and I couldn't get interested. So I left that one. But if I have passion, I never leave. But the question is how to shape it in the direction that will get you the results that you need. And sometimes you try one thing and it doesn't succeed, and then you try another thing, and eventually you get to the right path. Okay. And then let's not forget, even another outcome of a research project could be that it matures to become a product or, or a part of a product or any kind of commercial offering, right? And and I guess 
that's how it works within IBM is then sometimes you basically say you claim victory and you say, I'm now ready to hand this over to a development team to, to do this for real and, and maintain it over time and, and drive it forward as a commercial product, for example. Yes. Yes. And that's, it's never as simple as handing it over. Um, it's more like a relationship. So you hand over a certain piece, then you learn from the customer's feedback and so on, and you work on the next piece and so on. So usually this is relationships that are developing and um, that, and are kept for years between the uh, research and uh, especially if it's a successful project, research and uh, and uh, the product team. In un- unsuccessful projects, you put your you put your code in some product and it never went anywhere. So it's it, it doesn't you know worth the effort but in successful projects it's a years it's years of uh years of collaboration to shape this yeah and obviously doing like we said earlier doing it in open source helps right because that makes it easy to collaborate and contribute in in you know across the board yeah and it's also a, a, a an easy way and a quicker way to validate your ideas all right Great. I have I have two more questions for you. Uh, the first one is, if you look back at your career, and and, and I think you've, you've you mentioned quite a few of the projects that you've been working on, but which would be your favorite? Which was your most fun thing you ever did in your career as a researcher? Wow, that's a hard one. <laughs> or maybe you say all of them, right? That's that's okay too. I'm trying to think. Where did I have the most fun? I think I'm having the most fun today, actually. <laughs> Okay, that that would be my second question. So we're going to go straight to that is kind of what are you working on right now? I mean, to the degree that you can share it. I don't know if it's a secret, but no, can you, can you tell us what you're doing right now? Share. So there is a little bit of a story behind it as well. So uh, as I said, 20 years in cloud computing. But in 2019, I went to a conference, which is called ICSI. It's a computer science uh, uh, conference. Uh, and um I gave a presentation there and I uh, just completely coincidentally went to a keynote that was given by Steve Easterbrook about climate. And uh, up to that point, I was really sort of uh, ignoring climate. (laughs) I had other things to worry about. Uh, But his presentation, uh, it really shook me. This was in 2019. And... um, he said, look, uh, you, we all were all familiar with the UN report from 2018. That was very grave, very grave report. But it was underestimating the problem. And right now you're going to start seeing research that, that is going to explore uh, some interrelationship that we didn't factor in uh, in the UN report where um, different systems are related and that just exacerbate the problem. So, for example, uh, uh, Thermofrost that is melting uh, may uh, end up releasing more methane to the earth that was buried under these layers and, and stuff like that. Uh, so this really shook me. And, and what he said, he says, what can you do? And then he says three different principles. One, talk about climate. Two, be political about it, which means donating to uh, organizations that are dealing with climate change, for example. And three, if you can, make it your work, make, make it your job. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I said, okay, what can I do? And I'm technologist, so I think about technology. And I had all sorts of ideas of what I can do with my spare time. Like maybe I can write an iPhone an iPhone app that will um, help people um, make the right decisions in their life. You know, should I buy this product or that product based on its uh, sustainability uh, uh, score? How, how do you know what's a sustainability score for for a product? How do you know what is 
more friendly to the environment. And uh, I even have an, I had a name for that. You know, I got annoyed because I always get advertisement for uh, losing weight. Um, uh, so I, I decided, why are we obsessing about weight? We should obsess about waste. So I decided to call that um, iPhone app Waste Watchers. Anyway, I reached the realization that um, I don't have enough time to work full time and to raise two kids and uh, also to work on my idea. Uh, so eventually I started asking everyone around me, what is IBM doing about climate change? And um, I uh, talked with David McQueenie, who is uh, our, um, um, uh, in the office of, the, of our uh, strategy office and uh, corporate strategy. And he was, I was helping him with another cl uh, uh, cl uh, client on cloud. But then I asked him, Dave, can you help me? What are we doing about climate change? So he started uh, jumping up and down and he said, yes, I actually have a customer. And he dragged me into all sorts of conversations. And uh, I, I'm not sure what I can tell about that. So I'm not going to talk further about that. But long story short, in 2020, IBM Research declared that we're going to start with a new initiative, which is called Future of Climate. And I jumped on it. And uh, I actually even changed groups organizationally in order to join the leadership team. And... Um, now I'm sort of doing full circle back because we brainstormed for a long time about what we can do. And it's true. The number one thing that we can do in climate is reduce carbon emission. The question is, how do we help our customers reduce carbon emission? And also as IBM, what is our responsibility? Data centers. How do you reduce carbon emission of data centers? So now I am basically leading the strategy around um, a sustainable hybrid cloud. So it's a hybrid cloud that can uh, monitor um, um, qu uh, quantify the carbon footprint of each one of the tenants that are running their workloads on that cloud and then optimize at every layer the uh, reduction of the carbon footprint. And obviously I'm thinking about the next open source, open source project that is going to be some carbon accounting engine or something like that. So I'm thinking about it. <laughs> All right. That sounds really cool. Um... I, I'm now I'm starting to reconsider my career choice here. Um, so maybe I should become a researcher and look if I can, <laughs> you if definitely I can help should, with that. Andre. <laughs> we would love All to. Right. <laughs> with that, um, I think we're out of time. Wanna wanna thank you very much, Tamar, for being with us today. That was that was really cool. I really thank enjoyed you. this conversation. I enjoyed it. <laughs> All right. Well, and that wraps up today's episode. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you. Thank you.